Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Come to the sermon, we're going to be continuing a series that we've been in uh, this season uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts tells the, the history of the earliest Christian churches, uh, how this small little band of Jesus followers after the crucifixion and resurrection uh, came to be a religious movement uh, that, uh, that came to dominate the ancient world and even outlasted uh, the Roman Empire under which it grew. And so this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter uh, 14. This is, if you remember, if you're, if, whether you're new with us or just by way of a reminder, um, Paul and Barnabas, his traveling companion, have spent about a year in a city called Antioch, where they planted a church, where they spent a year training people in the basics of Christian belief about who Jesus was and what it means to be his follower. And then that, that church in Antioch sent them out to go tell other people. Uh, this same message. This is uh, what commentators will sometimes call Paul's first missionary journey, uh, is this, this trip that he goes on from Antioch around uh, the Mediterranean world. And so this morning, we're going to look at what happens to Paul and Barnabas in a town in Asia Minor called Lystra. And so uh, if you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Our scripture reading this morning is Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8 and reading through verse 23. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, one of uh, the strangest and most interesting sporting events in the world uh, is the Iditarod. Anybody know what the Iditarod is? It's that uh, thousand-mile race across the tundra of Alaska where men, uh, they get out there in this terrible weather. Believe it or not, I've, I've been told it's even colder than it is in Jacksonville, Florida right now, in Alaska, in the dead of winter. It's hard to believe. Um, but these guys go out with a team of dogs, and they go out across Alaska in a dog race. Seems to me the dogs are doing most of the work. The guys are sitting there on their sled saying, mush, mush, and the dogs go. But this strange, uh, strange athletic event started not as a sport at all, but it started as a life-saving rescue mission. It started, uh, there was a group of hundreds of children in Nome, Alaska in 1925 who had been exposed to diphtheria at a time when diphtheria was a life-threatening illness that was killing people around the world. Before widespread diphtheria vaccinations were available, this was a real threat to the children of Nome. And the only serum uh, that could grant healing to these children in Nome, Alaska, couldn't get any farther to them, couldn't get any closer than Anchorage, Alaska, about a thousand miles away. So what these uh, dog sled drivers did was they formed a relay to relay the life-saving medicine from Anchorage to Nome. It was a team of about 23 different sled drivers, over 200 dogs, that together, working together as teams, moved 300,000 doses of this diphtheria medication from Anchorage to Nome, Alaska. And so what began as a life-saving mission has now become a quaint and kind of odd cultural tradition. Right? We might, you might enjoy uh, learning about it, watching. I don't even know if it's on TV. It's probably on ESPN 8 or something if you go looking for it. But what started out as a life-saving mission has become an entertainment, kind of a quaint bit of tradition that they enter into to remember past times. And I think there's a danger for the same kind of thing to happen in the life of the church. For what started out, the church, as a life-saving mission, I mean, when you read these early stories of the book of Acts, what's clear to Paul and to Barnabas, when you read their stories is that they believed that the fate of the world and the fate of their neighbors hung in the balance when it came to this mission, to this calling that they had to live out the gospel and to announce it in the various places of the world, that it was a life-changing, life-saving mission commissioned by Jesus for the salvation of the world. And now if you fast forward 2,000 years, I think it's certainly easy for us to be, for the work of the church to be viewed by our neighbors as kind of a quaint reproduction of, of past times. Yeah, these people, they get together and they sing and they read and they remember, but really what they're doing is this is, it's, it's looking back to when stuff like that really mattered, but we know better now. Or even for us as Christians to kind of go through the motions of doing what church is meant to be doing, going to the group, singing the songs, praying the prayers. But without this sense that the church exists as a mission, as a life and death mission in the world, 
that it's not a religious club, it's not a support group for people who like to think about Jesus. It's a group of people clinging to Jesus and sent by Jesus on his mission in the world, a mission that is a life or death mission. That's why we've called uh, this series in the book of Acts Purpose and Power. Because what we see in the book of Acts is a group of men and women who in Christ found not only uh, the answer for their own salvation, but a purpose for which to live their lives, announcing that salvation, living out and into that salvation everywhere God sent them, and a power to do it. We've been doing this in the hopes that the same message and the same mission and the same means that brought Christ to a pre-Christian world would so inspire and shape us as we seek to bring the gospel to a post-Christian world. That the same, uh, the same impulse, the same drive that drove the mission of the earliest Christians would drive our mission and ministry. And it's a mission and a ministry that's not just uh, for those of us in the church who get paid to do it, right? It's not a mission that's just for pastors, that's just for church staff, that's just for uh, church office holders. It's a mission and it's a ministry that's given by Jesus to every Christian where we live and among our friends and among our family. And so what we want to look at in this chapter 14 of the book of Acts is what this ministry looked like for Paul in the city of Lystra and what we can learn about that from what our ministry looks like. And we're going to say, I know y'all are used to me having three points. Today we have five points, five points, but they're shorter than normal points. Um, but we're going to see here is the ministry of speaking, the ministry of seeing, the ministry of healing, the ministry of interpreting, and the ministry of suffering. Five points. The ministry of speaking. If you, when, we, when the story begins in verse 8, the first thing that we see Paul doing is speaking. We're told later on uh, in this chapter what he's doing is announcing good news. The Christian mission uh, in the world is primarily, first and foremost, a mission of speaking. The Christianity, everywhere that it went, every new town that Paul went into, he found himself speaking. He found himself addressing a crowd. And this isn't just because Paul liked to hear himself talk. It's not just because Paul was a communicator or a teacher. It's because of the nature of Christianity itself, right? He was, he was called to announce good news, he was called as an ambassador to go into a world and to announce that something had happened, right? He's not just showing a different way to live. He's not just showing a different way to love. He's saying something has happened that has implications for my life and it has implications for your life. And you can't represent uh, the Christian gospel without announcing what it means that good news has come into this world. The Christian mission is built on proclamation. Uh, the phrase has been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, although I have no idea if he actually said it. Preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. And that is a, that is a beautiful sentiment, right? That we ought, to live, we ought to proclaim the gospel with our lives, that we ought to love our neighbors and serve our neighbors and live in such a way that our life speaks the gospel. Yeah. That is good and, and true as far as it goes, but... You, you can't preach without words, right? If all you do is love and serve your neighbors, they might think you're a great neighbor. 
They might think, oh, isn't Steve nice? I sure am glad that he, you know, helped me with my weeds or uh, lent me some sugar. But he won't go from that and go, I bet Jesus rose from the dead and is the savior of sinners and I should believe. Right? It takes this marrying together of a life of faithful witness, a life of neighbor love, a life of service, and a proclamation that something has happened. And so Paul finds himself, as he often did, speaking. Speaking as an ambassador from one world into another. Right? If you notice, there's a difference in Lystra from some of the other cities we've looked at. Elsewhere, uh, he found himself speaking primarily to Jewish audiences in the synagogues, where he would begin with Old Testament, right? where he'd begin with, this is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of David and Moses. But now he finds himself in the midst of a pagan world without those backstories to fill it in. And so he's an ambassador from one world, the world of Israel and the covenants and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, speaking into another world that didn't have the framework to understand that world. Just as we often find ourselves, don't we, living in between two worlds, living between the believing community, between the church and an unbelieving world, and trying to find some way to speak, find some way to represent what we believe to be true. In a world that increasingly doesn't have the categories to understand us, doesn't have the want to to understand all of the backstory, that speaks in different languages about self and God and world, and to find a way to speak from one word into another. But the thing we want to see at first is that it does involve speaking, that that Christian ministry always involves speaking. If you're here today and are in a Christian church and call yourself a Christian, The chances are, I mean, I can look back on my own life and say that it's because at some point somebody spoke words to me that conveyed a message about good news. And I bet all of us can look back on our lives and find those people. Now, it's also true that I probably wouldn't be here if it weren't for people who laid down their lives and served me and loved me and befriended me and were kind to me. All of those other things that have to to accompany the words But if people in every generation don't speak the words of the good news, don't say, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, Jesus rose from the dead so that you can have life with him, now and forever, he's no longer counting sins against us, but has granted you forgiveness if you believe. Apart from the message, then the mission can't happen. We're going to see that the mission is more than words, but it can never be less than words. And so while Paul is engaged in this ministry of speaking, we see him also engage in the ministry of seeing. The ministry of seeing. Look at what he's, uh, these first verses. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And now look, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well. Paul is speaking. He's in the middle of a sermon, and yet his eyes are open to see what's going on with this man. Right? He's not so busy speaking that he's unable to look. He's not so busy speaking that he's unable to listen. And sometimes, I think, it's, I think the, the criticism is true, is that oftentimes Christians are so convinced that we have the answers, we're so busy speaking that we don't have enough brain space or heart space left to listen. Mm -hmm. 
to look at our neighbors and to see where they're hurting, to see where they're broken, to see where their needs are. Called to this ministry of speaking, we need to not be too busy to look and to listen and to see what's going on in the lives of our neighbors and our friends and our cities. What strikes me uh, about Paul in this story is how closely Luke narrates this story of Paul to the way that he narrates the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. Right? Always, in, in, if you read the book of Luke, uh, Luke's previous uh, volume here before he writes Acts. Over and over again, we see this rhythm in Jesus' life that Jesus is teaching and he's looking and he sees and he sees beyond what's easily visible, right? He sees beyond the surface of our lives. He sees to the brokenness of the people around him. He sees the sorrow of the weeping widow. He sees uh, the isolation and illness of the leper. He sees the hopelessness of the paralytic. But what else does Jesus see? Jesus sees beyond that. He sees the faith of the woman bleeding. He sees the faith of the, man's, the paralytic man's friends who lower him down. He sees both things at once. Jesus is always seeing both brokenness and the seeds of faith. He's always seeing what's wrong, what's broken about this person in mind, body, or soul, and seeing the glimmer of the beginning of the hope of faith. And he sees both of those things. And now Paul here, dealing in Lystra, looks out on this crowd and sees the same thing. He sees this man's brokenness. He sees what's wrong with his body. And he sees through that to see the faith that he has to be made well. He's looking out and he's seeing what's there, both what's broken and what's beautiful. I find it incredibly difficult to, to uh, be speaking and to be paying attention at the same time. Uh, I'll regularly, probably every week, somebody comes up to me after the surface, uh, service and says something along the lines of, I'm so sorry about my kid, right? You, they say, I'm so sorry my kid was crying. It probably really distracted you. And I go, no, I didn't hear it. You could, I, I, don't, I don't hear much of what goes on when I'm preaching. Uh, I'll somebody go, hey, I'm so sorry my cell phone rang in the middle of the sermon and then I had to walk out. Man, I didn't hear it. I get into a mode where I'm speaking and I just, I kind of block, I don't get distracted all that easy. And I think the same thing is true in, in the rest of our lives. We get into speaking, right? Have you ever found yourself in a conversation with somebody and they're talking, but what you're mostly worried about is figuring out what you're going to say when they're done talking, <laughs> right? You're nodding along like, yeah, this is a good story. Oh, I can't wait to tell them about the time that that happened to me. Yeah. Or I can't wait to tell them about the time that I had that question and I figured it out. Right? When we can be so fixated on our speaking that we stop looking and we stop listening and we stop paying attention. There's a, a Presbyterian minister in our denomination, a guy named Al Dayhoff, uh, who is a pastor. He no longer pastors in a church. Uh, he has a ministry, an, an evangelism ministry. And what he does, uh, the main uh, doorway that he has in this evangelistic ministry, he doesn't start with tracks. He doesn't start knocking and going door to door. What he does is he goes to two places. Uh, he goes to uh, Bike Week in Daytona, and then the similar one up in uh, North Dakota, I think it is. Sturgis. Thanks, Kyle. Always, re always ready. Um, and he goes to tattoo parlors and conventions, and he sets up a booth, and he invites people with tattoos to sit down and tell him the story of their tattoos. Uh, to try to understand, right? You figure if somebody cared enough about something to put it on their body that it matters to them in some way. 
And so he would say, sit down and tell me about your tattoos. Tell me about what it means to you. And that would be it. He just started with a posture of listening. Tell me your story. Tell me where you got here. Tell me what this means to you. Tell me who that person was. And then through listening begins to build bridges for how he might communicate the grace and love of Jesus. Right? That we're called to live where God's placed us with open eyes and open ears. Paying attention to the places that our city and that our people and that our neighbors are broken. Where they need to hear the hope of the good news of the gospel. Throughout the history of God's people, it's been a present sin for people to lose sight of paying attention to the brokenness of their neighbors. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 58, uh, speaking for God, is writing to a people who keep the forms of religion very actively in their lives. They're continuing to fast and to worship and to go to the temple. And listen to what God says to the prophet Isaiah. Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? That last verse, to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, has the the implication of turning your eyes away, turning your attention away from the lives of your neighbors, from the suffering of your neighbors. And what we see in Paul is that his eyes are open to see both the suffering and the, the beginnings of beauty in his neighbor, this man. And the beautiful thing about Paul's story is he's learning how to see like Jesus. Remember Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Remember what happened. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Emmaus. He knocks him off of his horse. And what does he do? He blinds him. And he stays blind uh, until Ananias lays his hands on him and he learns to see again. His sight is restored. What Jesus is saying there is, Paul, look, I'm going to give you new eyes. I'm going to give you new eyes to see so that you start to see the way that I see. So that you start to see the world and your place in it and your neighbors in the way that I see. And our prayer ought to be the same as Christians. Jesus, give me your eyes to see my friends, my family, my neighbors, my coworkers, my city, my community the way that you see. And so Paul engages in this ministry of seeing and then we see he engages in the ministry of healing. Paul doesn't just see, he does something about it. Paul sees that he had faith to be made well, and he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and the man does. Right? Paul sees the problem, he sees the need, he sees the faith, and then he does something about it. He says, stand, walk, again, mirroring the actions of Jesus in the Gospels. Now, the people uh, in this world who have ever said to someone, stand up and walk, and they do it, are pretty minimal, right? That's a small list of people. Uh, That kind of activity uh, largely slows and stops by the end of the book of Acts. We see the apostles uh, regularly doing that kind of thing. We'll hear stories of it later on kind of sprinkled through church history. But it is not the normative experience of Christian witness in our world to be able to miraculously heal. That's not something that I've ever done. But it is the pattern of Christian witness everywhere for ordinary non-apostolic Christians to see need 
and then to respond by doing something about it, right? To see need, to see uh, the hungry and to feed them, to see the naked and to clothe them, to see the wanderer and the, the lonely person and to enfold them in hospitality, to see the sick and to heal. James, in writing to the, uh, the early church, says this is a verse, if you're in our uh, School of Discipleship class, Willie read this verse for us in there as well. James writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose that a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Right? So what he's saying is, look, if Paul had looked at this man, this crippled man, and said, hey, I'm sorry you're crippled. Good luck with that. Then that would have been an empty action. But he sees it and he does something about it. He sees it and he reacts. He acts on what he sees with the, with the ability that he has. And he puts faith into action to do something for this poor man. One of the main uh, metaphors that's used for the church uh, in the New Testament is that the church is meant to be the body of Christ, right? And what that metaphor gets at, Paul's going to use it all sorts of ways. One way is to say that every part of the body has a, has a use, right? Just like you have a head and you have eyes and you have nose and you have ears and you also have pinkies and kidneys and toes and all that, that every church uh, has a body and every body has a part and the parts have a role to play. Every part matters. But what the metaphor, with all of these parts working... What it points to is that the church exists as the physical, corporal presence of Jesus in our world, right? That the, the, the physical matters, that the way that we give expression to our love in this world matters, that the way that we take care not just of spiritual needs, but of bodily, physical needs, of social needs, of spiritual needs, of physical needs, the way we reach out to care for our neighbors as they are, where they are, matters, that we do have a message to preach, right? There are words to be spoken. But those words to be spoken are a part of this larger holistic care for the well-being of every man, woman, and child that comes across our community. That it's a ministry of speaking and it's a ministry of healing. One of the te clear teachings of Jesus in the Gospels is that what we see with our eyes, creates a responsibility for what will we do with what we've seen, right? In light of what you know, in light of what you've seen, in light of what you've heard, what will you do? It's the basic kind of Christian ethical situation in the world, right? You have eyes open, you have ears open, you see what's going on out there, you're, you're, and now you're responsible for how you engage and how you respond to the needs that you've seen, Right? If nothing else, that's the basic message of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? That what's wrong with the priest and the Levite's action is that they see someone in need and choose to do nothing. They choose to turn on their own flesh and blood and to shut down that responsibility. But Paul, in this world, speaking the words, speaking the message, also does something for this poor man. He puts his faith into action and he calls him to rise pointing, of course, to the restoration of all things, right? There were everywhere that Christians, you know, even in Jesus's ministry, he healed some, he didn't heal others. 
Some people were, some dead were raised. Others died and stayed dead. All of his miracles are signs pointing beyond themselves to the, to the restoration of all things, to the coming kingdom when all the dead will be raised, all the sick will be made well. Then we see the ministry of interpreting. Now, the people of Lystra take this healing and they go somewhere with it that to our ears seems utterly bizarre. They see this man healed and all of a sudden, the next thing we know, they're about to sacrifice oxen to Paul and Barnabas, calling them Zeus and Hermes. They take what they've seen happen before them and they go, oh, we get it. We understand what's happening. We know exactly what to do. You're Zeus, you're Hermes. Let's make some sacrifices. That's what's going on here. And so Paul has to stop. He goes, whoa, 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 hold on. Let's explain, let's interpret why we've done what we've done and how we've done what we've done and who it is that we're here on behalf of. That there's always gonna be, in fact, it's one of the, the reasons for the Christian uh, ministry of good works, the Christian ministry of service, is that people will try to interpret why. Why did you feed me? Why did you help me? Why did you mow my lawn? Why did you help change my oil? Uh, why did you do this? And then we can try to help place our, our lives of service in a context of why. And that's what we see Paul doing here, is trying to explain who they are and why they're there and what they're doing to these people who had come to worship them. Now, as strange as their actions seem to us, these wouldn't have been strange actions in the ancient world. In fact, we have a story, um, the, uh, the Roman poet Ovid, who... Uh, who wrote about 50 years prior to this uh, story. And his uh, collection of poems, The Metamorphosis, tells the story of people all around the Roman Empire who believed that they had experienced the gods in human form. And one of the stories that Ovid tells uh, is about Lystra, this exact city where Paul and Barnabas are. And the story that Ovid tells about uh, Lystra is that one day, thousands of years before, Zeus and Hermes had visited Lystra. And what they had done is they went into this town and they went door to door looking for hospitality. And they never found it. Zeus and Hermes knocked on a thousand doors and nobody let them into their house until they finally came to this one poor old couple who brought them in and gave them food. And so then what they did was they took this old couple out of the city, they destroyed the city, burnt everything up, and then put the temple to Hermes right on the spot where that old couple's house had been. This story, uh, the people of Lystra would have well known. They believed that it happened thousands of years before, but it was well known enough that Ovid it was caught in this catalog of ancient stories. And as strange as that seems to us, this was the world that these ancient pagan peoples lived in, where there were gods who came and went from their lives, gods who, they, who were always out to kind of trick them a little bit, Gods who they had to figure out how to appease, how to give them what they wanted in order to get what they wanted and not get what they didn't want, right? And so there was a God in the ancient world for everything. If you wanted to have children, you prayed to the, the fertility God. If you were nervous about your crops, you prayed to the rain God. If you were nervous about your security, you prayed to the God of war. And you were in constant fear of, of failing the wrong God, not getting what you wanted, accidentally uh, doing or saying the wrong thing. 
And in those gods pouring down fire or neglecting you, spiting you, something like that. And so that's why Paul says what he says here. It's interesting. We think from the story, they're, they're saying uh, they begin their worship of Paul and Barnabas, we're told in, in verse 11, in another language, in Lyconian. And it seems like it's sometime later that Paul and Barnabas figure out what they're saying. It says when they became aware of it. So you imagine Paul and Barnabas are there, and you go, oh, it looks like they're responding pretty well, right? They're not, they're not trying to stone us. They seem happy. Oh, look, there's an ox. Maybe they're making a sacrifice to God. This has gone great. And you can almost see Paul's face. Wait, no, no, they're, they're worshiping who now? They're, they're sacrificing those animals to who? To us? They think I'm Hermes and he's Zeus? Hold on. And so he goes to them and he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Or he's saying, no, look, good news. We're just normal human beings, right? You don't, you don't live in a world where the gods come and go or they're trying to take on human form in order to trick you. I'm coming to, t- I'm a normal human being, right? There's a gap. There's a, there's a God who created all things, the God who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that's in them. And then there's humanity. And we're just humans, but we're telling you about that God. And that God is the one true and living God. He's the same God who's brought blessings on your life. The same God who's made it rain, the same God who's given you comfort, the same God who's been with you all these times. And up until now, that God has left the nations of the world to follow after their own ways. But now, good news, the one God is calling all people to himself. The one God, we're just men, but that one God has taken on flesh and blood and come near to you. And even though he was unknown to you and you worshiped after these other vain things, he's always been the God. The God who provides for you, the God who he's going to say was never without a witness in this world, the God who's always been reaching out to you. Paul is a master. We see over and over again, telling one story, the story of the good news of Jesus in different languages. To the Jews, he starts in the Old Testament. When he's going to be in Athens among the philosophers, he's going to start uh, from the kind of philosophical unknown God. And when he's here with these ordinary, common pagan people living with these superstitions, he starts with common grace, right? That God has made the rain to fall on the the just and the unjust. That he's provided the sun and the mountains and the blessings of our lives. He's given all these things as a witness, to you about who he is, and now he's come near to you in Jesus. And so he interprets the how and the why, pointing them to Jesus, pointing them to the one true and living God. It'd be great if the story ended there. The ministry of speaking, the ministry of seeing and healing, and the ministry of interpreting. But the story goes on to show something that's inseparable from the rest of Christian witness which is the ministry of suffering, right? Paul goes, this is a lot uh, to have happened to Paul in a couple of, like within one verse, Paul goes from being worshiped as a God to being stoned and dragged lifeless out of the city and left for dead. Ministry has its ups and downs, um, but that is a high, high to a low, low right there. So what happens here is that some of the The Jews from other cities come, and now Jew and Gentile together stone Paul. 
Paul, from his conversion to now, has gone uh, from, remember Acts chapter 7, Paul was there handling the coats when they were stoning Stephen. So Paul, in a few short chapters, has gone from doing the stoning to being stoned. Paul has gone from being one who sat self-righteously in judgment of others, executing those who he believed fell short of orthodoxy, to now being on the receiving end of the stoning. And all of this has been a part of his witness. Jesus, in fact, at that conversion, when he sends Ananias to him, says, go because I need to show him how much he's going to suffer in my name. Right? That the Christian witness in the world, we'd love for it to be from a position of comfort, a position of ease, and a position of power. Right? If, you know, honestly, most days, if I had to choose between being one of the ones doing the stoning or one of the ones getting stoned... I would, and probably, hopefully in my better days, I wouldn't want to do either, uh, but I'd much rather be on the, on the side of the one in power enough to judge others and enough to inflict that judgment on them. And yet the path of Christian witness is downward, right? It's not upwards to a place of power and judgment, but it's downward to a place of being often misunderstood, often mistreated. What Paul's going to say is sharing in the sufferings of Jesus for the world. That it means taking a servant's posture, a servant's place. Jesus said, no, you know, the servants aren't greater than their master. That he, the one who came as a servant, who came to wash feet and came to lay down his life, his life for a broken and sinful world, he calls us to that same place where we'll often, like Paul, be misunderstood and mistreated. Where we'll be called at times to lay down our lives and to hold our lives and our wealth and our reputation loosely in order to point others towards the good news of the one who came and laid down his life for a broken world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you uh, as those who don't much like the path of suffering. We much prefer uh, the way up to the way down. And yet, Lord, you've called us on the way of the cross You've called us to take up our cross and to follow you. You've called us uh, to point with our lives and our words and our actions and our love, uh, to point to the one who left heaven in love for us. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be shaped by your love, that we would be shaped by the love uh, of you who, though you were rich, became poor for our sake, the one who suffered for our sake. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to set our eyes on you, to so be grounded in our love, the love that you have for us, that we can go and pour out our lives in love for our neighbors, pointing all people to the good news that's changed our lives. Lord, it's easy in the busyness of life to forget uh, that the mission that you've called us on truly is one of life and death, one of eternal life, eternal death, one of the reconciliation of, of the world to you. And so, Lord Jesus, help us uh, to follow you as your servants on your mission. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.